Hello, Jordan. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? What's going on? I'm doing well. I'm I'm just hanging out. It's <laughs> safe. L I V I N. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, my new mantra. It's freezing. It's so cold today. I don't know if it's cold down in, in DC. No, it's just it's miserable the today. It's like 80 degrees here. Really? It is unbearable because the complex that I'm in doesn't switch from heat to AC until typically April, May. Okay. It's by so date. The heat it's not is by temperature. On. Yeah, yeah. It's by average temperature over the span of like a week or two. And it's supposed to snow here Sunday. So okay. we have an 80 degree day today with the heat on in the complex. So it's just making everything really unbearable. In the swamp. And then we're getting snow in 72 hours. Yeah, it's oh, cool. It's, it sucks. That sounds pretty like normal weather, normal stuff that we have to live with now. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, That's fun. <laughs> alarming. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but you know what I have been? What I have been watching. What's that? Is the footage from from Trump also juxtaposed with the footage from Pete from East Palestine yes. and Trump going to McDonald's in East Palestine offering he's to in buy his everyone element. McDonald's? It's exactly that's all I can think. Of. This is he's he's back. Like this is prime <laughs> Trump. <laughs> like his announcement I mean, speech that we talked about was so low energy. He was thriving. You put that guy in a oh, McDonald's, yeah. he's going to perform. Yeah, and the the workers they were all loving it. They were hanging on every word. He's he's riffing with them. He's talking with the owner. You know, he was absolutely in in rare form. And we talked a little bit about this on our previous uh, bonus episode with the John Russell of the Holler. And we talked about this kind of phenomenon and the way that the absolute it goes beyond incompetence for the Democrats. The fact that you know they spent so long before they even mentioned that this uh, incident was unfolding, and they let Trump show up in East Palestine, give this big speech talking about how they'd been abandoned by the federal government, although that they were coming now that he was there, contrasting with Joe Biden hanging out with Zelensky in Ukraine and promising aid to uh, more aid to Ukraine while not really showing up there, and just how completely incompetent they were to allow that to kind of happen and allow that to for him allow him to walk in there. And kind of act like a hero, despite the fact that we know that Donald Trump or con- the conservative movement, they're not going to be strengthening unions, railway unions. They're not going to be coming down hard uh, on on these like oligarchic railroad interests. But people around the country, especially in that community, are going to remember that Trump was there trying to support the community. Then, of course, the next day, that's when Pete Buttigieg finally shows up and he puts on his little hard hat and his reflective vest and everything. And he's trying to now act like he's this big responsible transportation secretary. And it's just, it's unbelievably frustrating how completely inept and foolish they look and how they've taken this, this situation, which they could have, they could have, like we outlined in the previous episode, turned it into a big win, come down hard on Norfolk Southern for this, show the community that they're there. And they just look like they only cared because Trump showed up. All they have is really platitudes and, you know, passing the buck and trying to say simultaneously that they're doing a great job, but also that the problem is everyone else's fault. It's just unbelievable how badly they've kind of messed this up and completely blown whatever opportunity there was to draw a contrast between them and Trump and the conservative movement. Yeah. Just from an optics perspective, you run the country right now. It is your administration. It is your government. Yeah, he's running for president, so he's going to be more opportunistic. You don't let him beat you there. The th- like, it took Pete 
10 days to even acknowledge it. And their defense over the past few days for the delay has been ridiculous. I don't know if you saw it today. There was a reporter from the Washington Post who pointed out that Pete's camp is blaming uh, the head of the EPA and shifting yeah. blame onto other departments, which is just like, yeah. you still control the railroads. You regulate the railroads. You have some responsibility. It's not just a chemical problem. It's also a rail problem. And st- that response, letting letting Trump beat any high-profile government Democrat right now is ridiculous. You have all the resources in the world at your disposal. How do you not get there five days later? I mean, this is this yeah. is he. Trump shows up two two weeks later, and he still beats you. I, it's it, it's just a purely yeah. optics thing, and that I mean, we live in a visual heavy media ecosystem. That's what people saw first, and then you get Pete there today, and he looks, you know, definitely out of his element. It reminded me a lot of when Kushner went to the Middle East. Yeah, you remember that? But he a little flak vest and, and everything. Yeah, yeah. a tiny little flak vest. Pete <laughs> showed up in a suit and put like a hard hat on, and it's just. Dude, come on! Yeah, I don't know. It's just it. it it's all just very. Oh, it's just, yeah. It was pretty bad. Demoralizing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he he's now trying to make this point that like, oh, Trump's here, but you know, don't do you know that he he um rolled back these rail regulations, the Obama era rail regulations, which as we talked about in the previous episode with John Russell aren't necessarily the cause of this specific crash, but it's a, it's a fair point that Trump did indeed roll back these kind of regulations. Um, but at the same time, they've been in charge for two years. Like what, what were they waiting for? They were just, they were waiting to get around to that any moment, right before people started getting mad at them that they were going to reinstitute those. They literally just broke a railroad worker strike like a few months ago, right before this started, where among other things, railroad workers were asking for safer working conditions. And now they're showing up the day after Trump shows up and trying to suggest that it's it's his fault and that they had nothing to do with it. And it's just, it rings, I'm, I imagine it rings really hollow over the people in the community. Optically, it's really bad. And I yeah, I think people around the country are going to kind of remember that response. Uh, it's just, it's been a incredible lesson in mismanaging something that I think they could have come, they could have turned into a win for them and they could have actually done the right thing, came down hard, reinstituted some tougher regulations, protected this community. And now they just look like absolute losers. So congratulations yeah. to them. Yeah. Uh, one other element that I thought is really important in this discussion that we talked about with John Russell was this precision scheduled railroading. Uh, and and the way they strain rail staff, work stretch them way too thin, don't staff trains to a sufficient level that would allow them to inspect the tr- these trains to prevent prevent against any future disasters in a reasonable way. So that's a great comp- conversation that we had earlier this week, and subscribers can get it by going to theinsurgents.substack.com. For just five bucks a month, you get access to that episode and all of our other premium episodes. You become a paid intern. We're greatly appreciative uh, of everybody who has subscribed so far. You help keep the show going. So thank you so much to all of you. Theinsurgents.substack.com. Please uh, consider subscribing. Yeah. Um, Get access to our episode with uh, John Russell uh, from last week. That was really great as well as a number of other um, really uh, fantastic bonus episodes. Become a paid intern. And we actually have a really great episode coming up as well right now with 
Eric Sperling from the Just Foreign Policy Group. Is that a think tank? Yeah. Well, how would a, you describe it's that? It's a nonprofit, anti-war nonprofit. Really great discussion with him about you know how the Russia-Ukraine conflict is progressing, about how there does seem to be a little bit more of an appetite in Washington now for de-escalation and negotiation, which I think is a nice change from how the climate that has been kind of pervasive in Washington and in Ottawa and around the Western world that has supported this conflict, as well as talking about the vacuum that has been left by, I think, the refusal to sort of talk about uh, having de-escalation and talk about the sources of this conflict, which has opened the door to these kind of cynical right-wing types to start taking this anti-interventionist position, including these kind of weird LaRoucheite cultists who we saw had that kind of libertarian anti-war rally over the weekend. We talked about that. Really good discussion. I mean, I am always happy to talk about foreign policy stuff and the anti-war movement is kind of what got me into, you know, progressive politics in the first place years and years ago. So it was, I was really enjoyed this one talking to Eric. It was really excellent. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate his perspective on our foreign policy and international affairs. Uh, Just foreign policy is a great voice in these conversations and a much needed one in Washington. Uh, they're not the you know pseudo pro progressive or pseudo anti-war group that ultimately just picks a side with whatever their partisan ties are. This is a real independent anti-war group. They're fantastic. So uh, stay tuned for that conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yep. Uh, and let's get to that. Sounds good. Let's do it. Or let's do it. Eric Sperling is going to be joining the program right after this. anything to small talk about are you an nba guy eric any basketball takes well, you are you are a basketball okay. guy big nba nice. guy big there we NBA go guy. yeah we suffered through i mean you know what we had 50 years of, of no bucks championship i'm from milwaukee wisconsin okay. originally and uh yeah we finally finally got one and you know that's enough you know my dad and i actually <clears throat> got to go to one of the finals games and and now we'll always have that you know i guarantee on his deathbed we will be like we have that go okay, yeah that's so, so, so yeah, we're pretty we're pretty big into it. Nice. Yeah, I'm a Toronto Raptors guy, so I got the same thing. I got many years of suffering, many years of ineptitude, uh, lackluster seasons, middle of the pack finishes where you have no playoff positioning and you don't have draft positioning. And we finally got one, and I feel like I'm still holding on to it. This this Raptors season has been pretty ugly, pretty unfortunate, and I'm still just kind of like, oh, you know what? It happens. It's all right. Get him next year. No big deal. Just what washes right off my back. Yeah, now. I mean, I, uh, I uh, you know, I wasn't the biggest Drake fan in the world, but after that one, what, what was it like, Eastern Conference Finals, where Drake was all over the court? <laughs> I don't think, I, like, I could not like if that if a Drake song came on the radio, it ruined my day. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, no, I know so. it's well, it's good that the Bucks got one because otherwise we would be blood enemies because of that kind of stuff. So yeah, exactly. Now we can yeah, just right. we can be friends. So it's all right. Sure. <laughs> we. You know, as a Cavs fan, same thing. Even with LeBron, it was still a ton of losses, except for you know one year. We finally got, we finally got a title, and we. I was on. Yep. I was also on the you team. Helped. So, <laughs> but and the way they won that too, coming back from three one, was spectacular. And then when uh, 
after they won, the Cavs cut up the court and put it in this kind of, I don't know if it was like plexiglass or what, but these clear cubes, you can get a piece of the court <laughs> and they sold little pieces of the court and you bet your ass I bought one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I've still got it. Nice. Yeah. That Raptors championship was nice. It was like really right before the entire world just went down the toilet. So it was like one of the last good things to happen. Yeah, NBA is the best league. You know, when we deal with some dark stuff, you know, uh, uh, the, the you know the the, gen- the starvation, genocides, you know, going on in yeah. the world, and you know the, the wars in Yemen and the nuclear. You know, we need a little bit just to watch some dudes, you know, throw a bounce of ball, and you know. But uh, yeah, yeah well, we love I didn't it. Realize that we're all yeah, it's good stuff. And East Coast guys, that's good to see yeah. too. Yeah, Eastern Conference supremacy. Yeah. Did you see that clip of uh, it was a group of guys in the West? Uh, I can't remember who the reporter was, but she asked them all, like, "Are you, are you good? Are you okay? Are you happy in the West?" And like everyone but Luca raised their hand. Uh, I mean, he, he just gets no help. Uh, and even with you know Kyrie's there now, that's a little bit of a help. But man, he really must hate it in Dallas. The Western Conference playoffs are going to be a bloodbath. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Russell Wilson going to the Clippers is going to be a funny development. Well, Russell Westbrook? Uh, I, just, I don't know how that team's going to work. The, that yeah, was the yeah, quarterback, the football quarterback. What'd I say? Russell Wilson. <laughs> Russell Wilson? I mean, him going... He, he would have as good of a season fan. on the Clippers as he did at the now. Broncos. <laughs> They're all the same. <laughs> They're all, all the Russells are the yeah. same. <laughs> yeah, well, sorry. Russell Westbrook. That's. I just don't see how the team's going to work with him there. He's just. He's a headache. He's a headache to deal with. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be fun to watch. The drama is going to be enjoyable. Yeah. Anyway, Eric Sperling. That concludes the uh, small the executive talk director of segment. Just Foreign Policy. Yeah, we're, we're moving on. <laughs> uh, Eric Sperling, uh, executive director of Just Foreign Policy, is joining us today. Uh, but before we get into our conversation with you, Eric, we have to ask you a tough question because we ask everybody. We've asked everyone, and now it's your turn. Eric Sperling. Are you a gamer? Yeah, actually, I'm glad uh, I get to say this. <laughs> One time it pays off. I actually became a gamer of sorts during the pandemic. So it's it's a new addiction. Oh. It's really, uh, really healthy stuff. Um, if I ever look at the hours that I've played, it's it's like a nightmare. Like whatever, if I can just avoid that screen where it shows me how many hours I've played the game. because that. But, but it's good. I mean, what I got, uh, I don't know if these count as gamer games, but... Streets of Rage 4. Does that one count sure, on the Switch? Yeah, yeah of course. These French guys did this uh, did this beautiful drawing. It's impressive. There's a whole video. It's like these French people have this quality of life where they can really get yeah. into it. It's amazing. And so they have this beautiful game. I, I think I'm a, with another one of our, our lefty friends. I'm, I feel like I'm in the top 100. I feel like I'm in the top 500 in the world at that game. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. So that's that's your main your main game is Streets of Rage Four. Yeah. What else did I knock out? Well, the French um, have time to to work to put time and effort into those kind of things because when someone tries to raise the retirement age or take away their vacation time, they burn the whole country to the ground. So it frees <laughs> exactly. them. It you frees know, so them emotionally like, to be able to put time into these things if they need to. This is why I explained to my wife. This is a work of art. I mean, yeah. Look at this game. The whole things. And I got into. I did uh, get into that new the Turtles game. The recent Turtles. Okay. Game. They're supposed to re-release. Like the the classic arcade turtles game, aren't they? Yeah, I bought that pack too. I mean, I get you know late at night, you're stressed, you're just like, let me just buy. I mean, it's all new to me. My mom said no video games, so I finally developed it uh, uh, later. But um, what I'm really waiting for is uh, Skate Four, and I'm going to buy the PS5 to get the new skate game because like that's something we've all been waiting on for a minute. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's highly anticipated. <laughs> so many people I, I still see on Steam are playing Skate Three. Uh, so yeah, four is long overdue. I just saw an interview with Tony Hawk yesterday. Uh, it was a clip from a while ago, but someone asked him how much money he made off of the Tony Hawk games, and he he kind of just broadly summarized. But he said at one point, as they were going to re-release some of the classic like the original ones when they were well into the franchise, it was doing so well that Activision had like re-released it and mass pub- like mass produced even more copies that he was getting checks for like nine, 10 million dollars just from those games alone on royalties, which is insane. He said like he's made more money on that game than he has uh, through his skate career, which is just wild. Yeah, I saw that. And then I also thought of it again because I saw he did some ridiculous ad for some supplement or something like that. Did you all see this new supplement ad that he no. has? And I thought, hey, I <laughs> thought he made so much off the game. I'm like, why does he have to do this supplement thing? It's like a, I don't even know what it is, but I was like, what did he, how, did he blow all that money? All that money? I'm like so confused why he has to stoop to the supplement like ads for like whatever t- demographic that's for. What was it like joint health or? It might have been. I, feel, I feel like it probably oh, was. No. Are we going to have to cancel Tony Hawk? His days yeah. are numbered. I'm, I'm calling it now. <laughs> he's, he's, he just keeps out. it pretty sterile. Yeah. He doesn't express an opinion like on anything. Uh, mm-hmm. He's very, very savvy. Yeah, he's a smooth. It's like operator. the Michael Jordan school of uh, uh, public relations. Yeah, just basically absolutely. keep your mouth shut. Right. Yeah, uh, but Eric, uh, in addition to gaming, you're here to talk about something almost as important. That's U.S. foreign policy, and you know, as as you know, the executive director of Just Foreign Policy, you're in the trenches day to day within the within the machine within the worst of the worst in, in Washington. You see it up close. I'm sure it drives you nuts. Uh, but one of the hot you know, foreign policy issues over the past year. We're now just past the year uh, anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, I'm curious where you think that is heading and how it has been handled over the past year. It's a broad prompt for just kind of your general thoughts on where we're at with that conflict. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot to say, um, obviously, uh, to try to think of where to narrow it down. I mean, I think folks probably, I'm assuming a lot of your viewers are, in the, you know, they're not big fans of the of the violence. I'm assuming they're even more concerned about the nuclear violence. So, you know, I think uh, that remains a, a pretty serious concern. We saw Putin stepped out, uh, you know, dropped out of uh, a suspended New Start, which already was basically not being um, adhered to. Um, and the whole U.S., uh, you know, kind of class here in D.C. said, why would you? You know, how can you do that? So irresponsible. It's like when you're on, when you're the second closest you've been to nuclear conflict, uh, according to President Biden in world history, um, you probably don't want the U.S. to come inspect your nuclear facilities. Like when they're basically kind of trying to get a sense of, of of whether like how they could fare in a nuclear war, you probably don't want them coming in. So it's been an interesting dynamic to see people in D.C. Um, be so surprised that, you know, when you're kind of supporting a, a military action, you know, even if it's by other people on Russia's border, that the, in the space in, for nuclear cooperation uh, goes down. Um, so, you know, and the worst part about being in D.C. is, you know, you really have skin in the game. I mean, I've been talking with staffers, uh, many staffers, and they seem really tough. I say, wow, you know, I thought you were kind of a, a wonky policy nerd, but you really seem like you're ready to to, to go up in, in a fire in a fireball. I was, I'm really impressed uh, with 
you know, I'm not. I tell them, full disclosure, I'm more on the, you know, nuclear risk averse side. Um, Controversial. You know, so I do give them, yeah, it's, you yeah. know, but I tell them I'm impressed. You know, I, I really am. Um, but all that to say is I do think what we've seen in terms of the fighting is we've seen, you know, over time escalating weapons uh, that are that are being sent, you know, better and better weapon systems that uh, Biden initially ruled out. At the same time, you know, we are still seeing for now the, the front lines being pretty stable over the last many months. So I think there is potential that, you know, if Ukraine doesn't uh, uh, basically score some major advance and Russia doesn't score some major advance, that you could see the two parties start to move, exhaust themselves and start to move towards talks. Um, and I think that's the hope. Um, you know, in D.C., you have an entire extremely hawkish faction that's doing a lot of work to promote the idea of uh, sending in fighter jets and the attackum missiles uh, they love to talk about. Um, there's a lot to say about that. But so far, Biden, with support from Sullivan and, and others, have, have really pushed back on that. And so I think there's a chance that we see a stabilization of the front line and a move towards negotiation. Um, but, you know, there's also a chance that, um, you know, there's some sort of surprise event that maybe leads to a massive Ukrainian advance. Uh, suddenly, Russia feels very threatened and then we're on the brink of a nuclear of a potential nuclear incident. So uh, that's more or less, I'd say, with the, the state of play at the moment. I mean, it's good to hear that Biden is pushing back on that kind of hawkishness. I think one of the consistent, frustrating things for me that I've tried to articulate uh, on this show and elsewhere just over the last year, just how little room in the discourse there's been for anything beyond more arms transfers, more more funding, more training to these uh, militias, more more escalation, and any kind of idea of having a negotiation or any kind of settlement or talks at all is framed as this kind of like capitulation or worse, even being like some kind of like Putinist uh, apologia or whatever. Um, it's been really frustrating. And you've seen even like the mild attempts on the part of some kind of progressives in the U.S. government to try and inject a little bit of sanity into that has been they've been treated like with total hostility by these kind of very hawkish uh, factions, including a lot of people online who will never, never step foot in Ukraine, but are just articulating this nonstop idea that all that can all can, that can ever happen in this conflict is more and more escalation and turn it into more and more of a, a quagmire. Um, has that been like from someone that works in that field and is part of that sort of uh, uh, milieu, has that been frustrating for you to, to see that kind of discourse continue to play out over the last year? Well, yeah, I think a lot of folks, um, you know, on the progressive left who follow foreign policy, or even if you just watch uh, Morning Joe, people saw what we now call Diplomacy Gate, which was where, you know, 30 members of Congress said, Biden, we support you. you just a little bit more, you know, a little more diplomacy, if, if that's OK. And, and there was this massive freak out that kind of became one of the all time great examples of, you know, accusing someone of, uh, you know, being treasonous for promoting diplomacy. Um, but the good news is, and, the, you know, it, it was a pretty amusing and, and kind of traumatic incident for a lot of people. But the good news is, is that we've had a total shift since then. Um, you know, General Milley is way to the left of where the Progressive Caucus letter was as far as his position. Um, you have um, even Adam Smith, who is the chair of Armed Services, big recipient of uh, uh, money, you know, all the he's up in Seattle area with all the defense contractor donors. You know, he said just last week in Munich that you wouldn't uh, Ukraine's not going to militarily retake Crimea. 
which was way to the left and way bolder yeah. than what the Progressive Caucus letter said. And so, and, and what that means is, he that means he believes that Ukraine's going to have to give up territory, which is going to be a result of a negotiated, you know, settlement. So, you know, I do think we're inching towards, uh, you know, some some sanity. Um, and and uh, you definitely have seen that through, you know, with a number of different members. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's been really sad, especially for the Ukrainians, because, yeah, you know, there was no deal before this war. Like Putin, you know, kind of laid out some outlines of what he would want. He didn't say, how about I'll kill 100,000 people and we'll cut your economy size in half and have like a 10 million person refugee crisis. And in exchange, you also won't get into NATO. And, you know, like the result of what's happened is like is so much more heartbreaking and devastating than even the the worst deal that that Putin was probably able to accept for the war. So it's just very tragic and unnecessary why. You know, we have to see Ukraine, which who knows how many years or decades it'll take for it to recover, you know, from this. And when the progressives put forward this letter, you and I talked a little bit on the phone about the consequences of delaying any sort of push for diplomacy. Because even like in in the grand scheme of things like you just laid out, it's horrific. Even just a several month prolongment is bad. Could you talk about how you felt and what you hope people understand about what, like how bad it was that people browbeat the progressives into submission when they released the letter calling for diplomacy? It was, it was extremely tame. It was just, hey, this is just something we should consider. That's it. That's all it said. So how did you feel when, when you saw them walk that back? Well, you know, to be clear, a lot of members didn't fully walk it back. Um, you know, we had Rokana went out, defended it. AOC shortly thereafter defended it. And, you know, it was sort of just a, a way to to kind of get it out, try to get it out of the news cycle. But, but you know, I think these are views that withdrawing a letter or not, they don't go anywhere. You know, these are pro-diplomacy views. And, and a lot of these progressive members are still you know, having those. But, you know, it was kind of an interesting dynamic because the letter was so mild that when these extreme hawkish Twitter people like came out attacking it, they actually you know, when it, it was so over over the top that they could attack that, that it spurred just within a couple of weeks, uh, we saw people like, uh, you know, administration officials coming out, General Milley and others coming out defending it because they had, a, it was such a moderate letter that attacking it in that harsh way forced the administration to kind of come out and defend like moderate, reasonable negotiation principles. So in that sense, it was almost like, yeah, it, you know, hurt progressives briefly, but it really hurt the hawkish Ukrainian cause because it forced a real discussion of diplomacy that and even forced a lot of administration officials who are on that kind of leaning that direction to come out. Um, so I think that part is, is, is good, you know, I think, but, you know, it was a kind of a strange moment, but I think in the end it, it served its purpose of, of kind of getting that debate going and, and jumping it forward. Um, you know, and now we're seeing what uh, senior administration officials just leaked to the Washington Post that they said Ukraine should give it a go for a couple months, see if you can get some more territory in the next few months, and then go to the table, negotiating table. And that's what senior administration officials are leaking to the Washington Post now. And, and so we have a chance for this thing to be in talks, you know, before the end of the year, which would be which would be great on many, many fronts. I'm, I'm curious how you reconcile those comments with what Zelensky and Biden are saying publicly this week. Right. So Zelensky saying the Ukrainians are going to win this war and Biden is saying this will never be a victory for Russia. And I think. Yeah, there probably won't be a clear-cut winner 
and lose it. It just it doesn't seem like that's been the case in decades, right? I I am I'm curious how you you know on the one hand acknowledge and maybe lift up these comments from Biden officials with what they're saying publicly. What should people latch on to? Yeah, well, it's um, and I don't want to you know give away too much here because I think um, you know there is a split. You know, we, we do have in you know the executive branch. Uh, we don't have the type of government where people say, well, the president, he's elected. Uh, let's just do uh, whatever he d- instructs us to do. You know, as you get to if you live in D.C., you get to know that there are people who really consider themselves to be a power center onto themselves and, and they are going to advocate for their own interests. So I, I do. You know, that is really what is kind of the least certain part of it is that there are, you know, especially of people like Victoria Newland at state and even, you know, even. Blinken, who's they've been on the hawkish side of this debate for for most of of the you know for for many years actually um, you know that that debate got smaller you know when the war began but now it's kind of reemerging and I think um, so I think you know what's what Biden and them what they want is they don't want it to appear that they pressured Ukraine into a solution um, if they do that then you could have a risk that there's a, you know, some of the more far right nationalist forces in Ukraine start accusing Biden of, of being uh, basically betraying them, which could put Zelensky in a very weak position and create additional pressure for Biden to, to strengthen. So I think to, to really pump in, in aid. So I think what he what they're trying to do is set reasonable amounts of aid and then let the Ukrainians come to their own senses about, you know, how many more lives do we want to throw into this over control of this town or that town, um, you know, and that's what's so heartbreaking. I was speaking of gaming. I was always joking that, you know, if you had a friend in this war, I mean, can you imagine if you would say, you know, yeah, go out there, you know, fight for this piece of this village, you know, you know, you would say, stay in your house, play video games all day. Like there's nothing, you know, like do not give your life over this village that could change hands again, you know, but that's really what, what we're down to. And, and so you hope that at some point Ukrainians and there's some evidence, there's some fatigue will say, you know what, you know, my life isn't worth it. You know, and I always say it's really a debate over land, you know, versus lives. You know, do I want to give my life to protect this land or do I am I willing to negotiate on land to protect the lives? And, you know, and I just I'm more of a lives kind of guy myself. Uh, I, the, we don't we haven't found a way to, re, to bring the lives back. You can't land, you know, stays there, which is the upside of it. Yeah, I think that's been one of the really weird things is seeing people in the West who have nothing to do with Ukraine get so reactionary about this and and this have this adamant attitude that like, no, this these village cannot fall to Russian hands and we must continue to continue to just throw Ukrainians at this thing until they can the the horde can be repelled. It's very strange. I'm wondering if maybe despite some of these more hardcore elements in the, the sort of the cable news set that has been really adamant about not ever surrendering or not ever uh, having any kind of negotiations. Do you think one of the reasons that the administration is starting to maybe lean a little bit further in that direction is that there's, there is kind of a fatigue setting in for average Americans who are struggling themselves and who are kind of seeing this nonstop flow of aid to Ukraine and being asked to, uh, support the government, just like this, giving this like kind of endless supply of arms and aid while they themselves are struggling. Like I know, I I do think the war is becoming a little bit more unpopular after the initial sort of propaganda push kind of subsided a little bit. 
Do you think that fatigue is having anything to do with the fact that the administration is maybe softening a little bit on that? Yeah, I think they know. I mean, Biden, I think, still is, is hoping and, and dreaming that he could get, you know, a second term. And, you know, with the global economy in a, you know, in the situation it's in and Republicans uh, controlling the House, you can't pass stimulus, you know, which you learn from Bernie. We learn a little bit of left populism. But when you lose the House, you can't you can't pass that stimulus to help help your. And so I think, you know, they they have a real interest. And there's some there was a nice New York Times piece hinting at this that. They want to resolve. I think there are elements within the Biden administration that want to resolve this so the global economy can be recovering and roaring going into 2024 uh, in any case. But, and you know, I think it's a huge risk if you don't do that. Uh, and it's something that I've thought a lot of folks have overlooked, which is, you know, you're basically setting up the far right to take score incredibly huge political points on this. And it's very risky if you don't end it, because if Donald Trump, let's say if he says, you know, uh, if he, he runs, let's say he wins in the polls out today, look scary, you know, good for him, I guess. Um, and then he ends the sanctions on Russia and immediately cost of living drops. I mean, he, the, that could help the far right really win over a huge segment of the working class. And that's, I think, a risk that we can't. That's just too, too much to, to, to take. Well, you're seeing him in East Palestine right now coming through hanging out with McDonald's workers and buying meals for people and shooting the shit with the average people in the community. And then he's saying, where's Joe Biden? He's in Ukraine with Zelensky handing over more billions of dollars in aid. And like I've been saying on the show, I mean, I think no matter what your personal feelings are about the conflict or Russia and Ukraine or or how that's gone, that's going to be a pretty compelling argument for a lot of people. Um, And it doesn't really look really great for Joe Biden or anyone when they seem like they're more concerned with with that and coming out on top there than actually like dealing with big major crises that are happening and affecting communities of people in America. Yeah, well, Eric, I'm, what are the consequences of that? So we talk, we've talked before about ceding ground to the right and these kind of hollow populists on the right on foreign policy. You have Tucker Carlson pretending to be opposed to intervention now for years they see this as an opportunity clearly despite years or decades for some of them on the record being war hawks they see this as a political opportunity and the support for this effort like you're talking about these couch warriors who are tweeting all of these grandiose claims about how we have to fight putin and fight russia what the fuck (laughs) are you doing you're sitting at home you're on your phone and they're not connected to the horrors of war at all they're completely safe so it's very easy for them to clamor for more bloodshed that's largely been a democratic push we saw that in the reactions to the letter a lot of these resistance or hillary types were browbeating uh, progressives over it and the right has pretended to be anti-war and anti-intervention the consequence of progressives and the democratic party which should be an anti-war party we want that we want the entire party to be an anti-war party the consequences of ceding ground to the right what does that look like to you over the next 5 10 15 years yeah i mean it's just so so unnecessary you know and I, you just you know I, i'm you know our we are my organization just foreign policy um you know we are nonpartisan and and also kind of do work with the left and the right um you know usually in you know, good. There are some good faith right wing folks uh, that that oppose war and just want the you know U.S. to stay out of other places. And um, 
you know, so it just, it, I just don't, you know, I think it's just such a, a, a unnecessary self own, you know, but I think this is kind of the fight for the, the battle of the democratic party. And you do have folks that uh, when push comes to shove, they would rather the Democrats lose than, you know, sacrifice the U S position, you know, in the rules based uh, international order, you know, and I think, so there is that fight. And I think everyone and people who watch your show, uh, progressives who are really, you know, I think people of kind of you know, millennial or Gen Z or whatever the next one, you know, like we're going to have to fight to kind of say, no, like we really don't care about global domination and maintaining that. Like if we can't even, you know, fix the stuff here, like there's just no justification for like, you know, I think it's it's just so obvious to like even conservatives, if they are not even progressive, they say, well, I don't like something here. Why are we spending money there? Like I could use it for anything. They, you know, so I think it's it's just such a, a guaranteed winner. And I think we're going to have to fight some of these deep state kind of these more D.C., you know, NATSEC progressive types, uh, so-called progressives or um, who are really by global standards, pretty yeah, they're pretty far right by global standards. You know, they're one of the more right wing parties, uh, those folks. And, you know, and then kind of the base of the Bernie movement. So I think, you know, I think we can win it, but but it's not guaranteed. And, and certainly we've been on the back foot. You know, we talk about seeding ground to the right. I think it's one of the reasons, again, I've been advocating that there needs to be more room to talk about dialogue and diplomacy and also talk about the role that America and Canada and the NATO country played in provoking this conflict in the first place, which, as we pointed out many times as a caveat, is not an excuse or justification for any horrible things that have happened in the war. But it's just a fact that we have contributed to it, that we contributed to that situation, um, pushing up against this red line of Russia's as as many like uh, not socialist, anti-imperialist, but like reg- establishment national security types have been warning for years. Russia is going to consider this a provocation if we keep on pumping arms into this region and funding this kind of civil war that's been going on. And that's one of the reasons I've been advocating for that there needs to be space to have these discussions because when I think people in the kind of progressive left or in the mainstream Democratic Party abdicate their responsibility, it opens the door for not only people like Tucker Carlson, but also these like LaRoucheite weird cultists that we saw at this like uh, anti-war rally that happened in in, uh, DC over the weekend, which was quite an interesting scene. But that's been the tricky thing, I think, uh, parsing some of these things, because I think when I when I listen to some of these folks talk about this, oftentimes when they talk about Russia or or also China in some cases, they'll say things that I think are based in kind of a real analysis and understanding of how these incidents have, have played out. But then they're, of course, leading people using these kind of truthful elements and leading people down this path of reactionary thought and, you know, embracing the kind of like anti-vax crowd or the contributing to the trans panic or appeal to, appealing to these like Donald Trump loving January 6th insurrectionists and stuff. And I think it's a kind of dangerous and insidious thing when these folks are able to use these, use this kind of rhetoric around foreign policy and then pull people into that camp and away from the kind of the, what the anti-war movement should be, which is like a broad and inclusive and progressive movement. Um, and they, they, it allows them to come in here and kind of wreck that movement. And these clips of these uh, these LaRouche folks harassing the squad members are just, I mean, it's un- unbearable to watch. It's like, you know, you're just like, there's no in- attempt to be persuasive or, or you, you know, to try to engage and, and understand that, like, you know, it's just a very backwards view about why it is that people aren't uh, taking more progressive positions. Well, we know why they're not taking more progressive positions. 
it's a very hard right wing country and there's a lot of political costs to doing so. And so we need to create the, you know, the space and encourage them and and figure out, you know, how to encourage our progressive members. Because you talk to any of these squad members privately, you know, they, they, you know, what, what someone believes does not mean that they can just go take any political position you want in the U.S. political system. It's a tough political climate, as we saw with the letter. So it's really frustrating to see these LaRouche folks who are screaming at the squad members. Um, you know, and you, what you can tell is that they're just not, they're not coming at it from a place of compassion where we are, you know, worried about the harm to, to humans that these policies are causing and that we want to figure out how can we reduce that harm. You know, these are people, it's like a hobby, some weird hobby or some weird thing that they, you know, define themselves with and that they use to say that they're better than others. But you can tell it's not coming from a place of like genuine concern and, you know, for, for the victims of, of this conflict, you know. Yeah. To Rob's point, when I saw some of these clips from the event, because I'm curious and I want to observe whenever there is an anti-war effort in D.C., it's frustrating and disappointing when I see speakers who are even purportedly self-described, you know, on the left, getting up there and using their time to rail against vaccine mandates, rail against trans people, gender identity, the culture war issues. How does that fit into our foreign policy? Who cares? Why do you care? For one, why do you care how someone else identifies? And why is it why when you have an audience and you can talk about foreign policy, why do you put that on the same level? And it's, just, it's really bizarre how, you know, people on the left are using these right wing points to gain an audience. And then also the right is using this this anti-intervention, anti-war uh, platform, stance, position, talking points to make inroads, which ultimately for them on the right, it still leads to nationalism because it's it's just an isolationist policy. And that's I that's also extremely dangerous, even if you're framing it in this anti-war uh, rhetoric. It's 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 still really dangerous because at the end of the day, they're still going to blame immigrants, marginalized communities, people of color, whoever they're going to blame them for their for the problems that working class people face in this country. Once you get past if they are successful reducing military funding, guess who's guess who's next on the chopping block? So I, I just I, it's frustrating. But the thing is, those get attendance even by some well-meaning people on the left because there isn't anything else on the left. There isn't a physical action in D.C. There isn't a huge groundswell of support for an anti-war push on this front. So what do they have? That's the only option they have right now. It's really, really heartbreaking to watch. Yeah, I think it's a great it's a great point. I mean, I think I will say on the upside, you know, what we have seen, you know, I forget, you know, if folks might you know, remember from our childhood, the good old fashioned, you know, Iraq war where we sent in almost what, 20 years, you know, a month from now, it'll be what, 20 years or whatever. Um, but we sent in the troops, you know, and 5000 troops died, you know, and little by little, they've been kind of distancing the U.S. from the war. So on one hand, you know, that it's good in the sense that it protects our troops from being killed and injured. And from then later having the suicide issues and stuff that were just horrifying, but it also, you know, creates a new challenge and, uh, you know, because they just have like in Yemen, the Saudi princes are do fight running, doing the bombing runs. Um, and in, uh, you know, in, in Ukraine, you know, just all Ukrainian bodies and U S weapons, Ukrainian bodies, you know? And so, so I will say that, you know, on one hand, it's, I think that's partially responsible for why it's a little harder to get people to turn out. Um, and it's a, it's because we're chipping away. You know, the, the, the war machine can't just send in bodies like they used to be able to. 
Uh, and that's because of the work of a lot of people. I know a lot of people I grew up with in, you know, in middle school, high school, those days, like high school, I guess it was. Um, you know, we're chipping away, but they do find new ways. And now they got they got a war on Russia's border and they're kicking Russia's butt. And Russia is got is thinking about going nuclear. So, I mean, I'm hoping that this will be if we if we can get through this one, I think we'll be in good shape to kind of call out. Uh, this type of new kind of proxy war where where you can have endless Ukrainian bodies. In fact, the more Ukrainians die, the more you can rally support. So it's this really twisted thing. And, I, and hopefully, you know, I, you know, once we de- defeat this kind of new manifestation, we'll hopefully be in a good place. But we'll see. You know, you mentioned the invasion of Iraq. I mean, that is one thing there like, on the anniversary of the, the, the 20 year anniversary of the Iraq invasion. I know there is a an answer-led uh, anti-war protest going on in D.C., which I'm kind of interested to see um, how that compares to the, the the one that we just saw over the weekend, this kind of libertarian uh, uh, LaRoucheite thing. I guess, but when you talk about the invasion of Iraq and just the way that like America has engaged with the rest of the world throughout the last several decades or even throughout the last you know 20 years or so, and what our allies do as well, I think that's what I've found very gross and hypocritical throughout the last year of the the – the kind of talking about Russia and the, the, and suggesting that they're the only country that has ever engaged in an invasion of another country, or they're only they're they're just inherently brutal and violent in the something in the Russian DNA, or this kind of the way that we've we've kind of taken this holier than now approach to talking about this, while completely ignoring our own role, not in not even in just provoking this conflict, but. You know, the last 20 years of the war on terror, the absolute horror that we, uh, you know, America and its allies unleashed on the world there and the way our allies are acting right now, like what Israel is doing right now at this very moment in the West Bank. And we we totally turn a blind eye to that. We talk about how important it is for Ukrainians to have the right to self-defense. And we're, we're showing video tutorials on how to make a Molotov cocktail, but we don't extend the same opportunity to Palestinians. We don't extend the same opportunity to Yemenis who are also under this unbrutal campaign, uh, one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world that we're subsidizing and funding. So again, it, it doesn't, I don't want to let Russia off the hook for engaging in any terrible things throughout this last, uh, throughout the last year, but I've found the hypocrisy really hard to stomach the the kind of the way that people in the United States and Canada, Canada also played a very large role in encouraging this conflict in the first place, have been taking this kind of like high and mighty attitude that we're the defenders of democracy and human rights and freedom and all that stuff. I mean, it's just, it's just childish and it's like, it's been disappointing and frustrating, I think, to see people engaging in that kind of rhetoric and uh, seeing that there's still apparently a big audience for it that believes that. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, I can't tell how many people are even tuned in. You know, certainly in our educated class, you know, people are pretty tuned in to MSNBC, you know, MSNBC and CNN and all that. But, you know, I think a lot of people see through it. And, and the real issue, too, is that it just came out in the Post. Uh, it was a new piece in the Post basically showing that the only countries that are giving um, weapons and engaged in sanctions on, on Russia for this are are the U.S., Canada, Europe, and then a few of U.S., uh, you know, South Korea and Japan. But like, you know, vast majority of the world has not provided arms, have not sanctioned Russia. And a lot of them are, you know, kind of on Russia's side. They feel like it's, you know, it's a dispute between the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. has been unfair to Russia. I mean, that's a huge percentage of the world. When you look at this Washington Post piece came out uh, just just was it I guess they posted on Twitter today. I saw it last night. 
But you realize that the only countries that are engaged in this are U.S. and Europe, pretty much. It's really mostly a, you know, a, a global north kind of a white country phenomenon. You know, and I think most people in the developing world are like, come on, folks, like just, you know, talk this out, you know, talk this out. You know, the U.S., you know, I mean, so I think, you know, I think that we're we're, we're, on, a, we're on a good track, but. You know, I think a lot of the world is is kind of seeing that hypocrisy and, and a good percentage of American people are, too. So if we can just get this progressive movement to realize that, um, you know, the, you know, that uh, we're losing votes this way. I mean, I think hopefully we can make that case. But, um, but I'm feeling, I guess, mildly optimistic, but that could change quickly. I wonder what you make of Zelensky's comments a few days ago regarding China potentially getting involved or China allegedly backing Russia in this conflict. And he said, if it is that if it, it if China does ally with Russia in this, supply Russia with uh, aid, arms, back them, whatever, there will be World War III. You know, that's not exactly peaceful rhetoric. Uh, but as you just laid out, Ukraine has the backing from most, if not all of Europe, the United States, Canada, few other countries elsewhere in the Pacific. Why, uh, if if one country backs Russia, would that lead to World War III? What do you make of his comments and why should we be alarmed uh, by that potential? I mean, I think that, you know, the reality is, is the Ukrainians are seeing that, um, you know, the, they recently passed a law cracking down on, on deserters and people and bad behavior in the Ukrainian army ranks. It was really controversial, like 30,000 Ukrainians signed a petition to Zelensky asking not to do it is so harsh. So it shows that, you know, there's there's concerns about the troop morale. And and essentially, I think they're just horrified that if, you know, China were to come in now, give Russia some additional support, Russia might start rolling. Because um, as of now, it's it's pretty it's pretty uh, evenly matched. And this thing is on its way to stalemate, um, you know. And so I think, um, yeah, you know, I think Ukraine is worried that, you know, they have it pretty much stalemated. And if China gets involved, uh, they, they could be in really big trouble. And so for that reason, China is not going to get, in my opinion, they won't get very involved. They might provide some minor dual use stuff, but they're not going to be arming, uh, in, you know, in any major way, uh, Russia. Um, you know, so, I, you know, I think I'm not too worried about that, but it is heartbreaking for the Ukrainians who got, you know, encouraged to, to fight rather than talk it out. There was a lot of voices in D.C. said, do not talk it out. Don't even consider it. And it's heartbreaking, you know, reading the stories of how many people lost their lives. And, you know, and and ultimately the negotiated settlement is going to be something very similar to what they could have got without all the death and destruction before the war. Well, even you look at the, the Minsk agreements. And I know like one of the reasons that Zelensky was so popular when he was initially elected was because he was campaigning on following the Minsk agreements and having some kind of dialogue and dialing down the, the violence. So I know there's a lot of appetite for that. But that's the thing. It's like you see, there was those comments from Angela Merkel a couple weeks ago as well, where she kind of talked about that and kind of openly said that, oh, yeah, we the West never really had every intention of getting Ukraine to follow those agreements. That was just buying time so we could continue to pump arms into the country and train them and get them ready for this. So it's like, yeah, it's, it is heartbreaking because there was many off ramps prior to this conflict breaking out that just seemed to be uh, ignored at every at every turn. Um and yeah, I guess just on the subject of, of China, like we were just talking about, yeah, like I agree, it's like they've been pretty consistent about wanting to de-escalate the conflict and not make it even worse. So I doesn't don't really see why that would change. But like I I, I definitely appreciate your optimism about the the possibility of this winding down, but it does also seem like there's appetite 
I don't know if uh, maybe it's a small minority of these extreme hawks that are that populate Washington D.C. that want to turn Taiwan into the next kind of flashpoint, the next proxy war, and they're pumping arms into Taiwan as well, just as they were doing to in Ukraine prior to the conflict breaking out. And there seems to be a lot of appetite for some people in Washington to uh, have that kick off even more spectacularly uh, over the next couple of years. So. Are you optimistic that we're going to be able to avoid that outcome? Because that seems to be, regardless of what Zelensky was saying about China backing Russia, that does seem like the potential to spiral into an even worse global conflict if they are able to kind of ignite that to the same extent uh, in Taiwan. Yeah, that would be absolute, you know, economic nightmare. I mean, we've had some supply chain issues, you know. My mom's been, you know, complaining the delays and things shipping. I said, "Mom, this is all the global supply chain." Like, you know, it's this. I'm working on this. I'm trying to get the supply chain going. Um, but um, no. But in all seriousness, that would be. I mean, China is like the world's, you know, factory. I mean, it, the trade would be insane. And so, you know, that, that is where you know I, I want to be hopeful. I mean, I think we. It's not. It's a thing where we all have to be engaged for sure. I mean, it's not just a small group of extreme hawks here. It is the prevailing view in Washington, you know, I would say even among Democrats uh, and senators and, you know, who are maybe even center left on other issues and they're aligned with Lindsey Graham saying, no, send them the, the, um, send them the planes. It's like, you are going to get Ukraine nuked. Okay. What are you doing? Like, you know, but they, they, I don't know, there's something, but, but I do think the good news is we do have, you know, Biden um, who he's appeared to, you know, he, for example, in, um, in the Libya war, you know, he was on the side saying stay out. You know, he was pretty consistently at different times concerned about the Afghanistan war. He did ultimately get us out. You know, he did learn a little bit from that same Obama kind of anti-war trend. And so he's sort of part of that. And I think <laughs> that is one of the only things we have going for us, honestly, is, is good old, you know, Uncle Joe and his very elder state. One of the things he remembers is I don't want to I don't want to be the guy who gets the world nuked. Um so I think that's one of the only things we have going for us. But on the Taiwan question, um, you know, I think, you, you know, I'm hoping that we, we people will have learned. And I think there's some evidence of that. Like we just had a vote um, to create the new China commit committee, a new, new committee in Congress. The House voted and uh, it was basically a referendum on do you want to do a Cold War with China or not? And we got 65 Democrats to vote. No, don't create the committee. Um, which was kind of like pretty impressive. It beat expectations. And so I do think people are like, okay, Ukraine, you know, you got us. Yeah, support Ukraine, like, you know, like fund Ukraine with weapons and give them weapons. But I don't, I think there's going to be more reluctance to go down that path with Taiwan among many progressives. That's, I think there's some indications that people are like, you know, good old, like, you know, George W. Bush, like, you know, fool me once, you know, whatever, you can't fool me again. That's our hope with these progressives. They're saying, all right, we're not going to go down this escalation spiral with Taiwan now in the same way that, that we did with, with Ukraine. Yeah, I guess it just gets kind of scary. You saw the absolutely unhinged freakout over the Chinese spy balloon uh, and that over the last couple of weeks and the way that the media just seems to be like completely chomping at the bit to uh, inflame this as much as possible and to make people as fearful as possible that, that China is coming to spy on them in the shower or whatever whatever is they think is going on you know so it's very strange i mean you got to hope that that reason is going to prevail there as you pointed out there's deep economic ties between china and the us and china and the whole rest of the world and starting this kind of like hot war with them would be absolutely cataclysmic 
Um, but you know, still there seems to be a large appetite for that. So I, I hope to be, I hope that you're right that, uh, the the sensible people are going to prevail in that argument and not give in to the people that are just seemed adamant to uh, push us all towards this global conflict, which is going to be a massive cataclysm for everybody. Yeah, and they got new agreement on Philippines now. They're working with the the, the, the you know the, you know the former dictator's family. We're not concerned about that. We're now setting up military bases, patrols with the Philippines. You know, it's all surrounding China. So they're going to have many opportunities to stir up a war. Um, and we'll just have to keep, you know, doing the work of teaching people like, you know, how, uh, how much it's going to, you know, how much it's going to mess up their lives and, and provide nothing of value to do it. But it'll be a, it's going to be a, the fight that will probably define many of our, you know, of our of our next you know, decade or two of our lives. Here. On the near term, though, and somewhat related, it was an, reported a week or so ago that the Biden administration is expected to request the biggest Pentagon budget ever. Around the same time, as Rob was pointing out, there was this hysteria over the balloons, many of which were ultimately determined to be like hobbyists, just flying, you know, high altitude uh, balloons for whatever hobby they're into, weather, science, non, you know, non-gaming bullshit. So I don't care. <laughs> but you know, Hawks use that as an opportunity to call for even more mm-hmm. military funding. We need to do this. China's going to keep sending these devices. You know, last year, last summer, it was reported we've been doing the same thing. That was our the next frontier for our war or, our, or ultimately our Cold War right now with China. We have these devices and we're doing the same thing. The Atlantic did a glowing piece about high altitude devices and how it's the next thing for the American military. So in the near term, we're expected to see the biggest Pentagon Pentagon budget request ever, and likely Congress will punch it up even more. What should people understand about that as we get closer and closer to a $1 trillion annual military budget? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, the challenge we have is the people who need uh, support in their communities most are just not looped into the Pentagon funding you know, authorization and appropriation process, right? This is not something that, you know, the average American couldn't tell if there's a seven or a five in front of all those zeros or whatever. You know, and that's our real challenge um, in, in kind of getting people engaged, getting them following it and showing a real trade-off. Uh, and so we all, we will be, um, you know, I think working on this this year to try to see if we can get this Pentagon spending fight to actually be heard by Working people in the country, not just this kind of this this DC political class, uh, but but get people to be able to see, like, really visualize what we could have as a society if we just went back to President Obama's uh, defense budget. You know, and I think that's a nice. You say, did you feel good under President Obama? We did. In fact, that was it was you know people felt pretty safe at the end of President Obama's term. Um, and so, but we could have like, you know, I mean, it's unimaginable what we could have for, for, it would be, you know, what, th- about $300 billion worth of, of spending money that we could spend on real national security priorities, like, you know, like our schools, right? Like, I think we all have educator, family, or friends after the pandemic. These, these schools are in pretty rough shape. These kids are, are struggling and many of these kids are struggling. So I think it's an important national security priority to like get these kids to be in a healthy place so that they can actually um, you know, produce and, and, and have fulfilling lives, you know, but that's, of course, not, you know, the national security type thing that, uh, you know, that that's most of interest here in Washington. Yeah, well, it's the amazing thing about the defense budget as well, the Pentagon budget is you'd think, 
you know, you gave Biden credit for committing to that timeline in Afghanistan and ending that war. Uh, you'd think ending that massive 20 year war, that would actually decrease the budget, but somehow the thing just keeps going up. It's funny how that works. <laughs> you know, I don't get it. Yeah. It's kind of like the best, you know, we end the Afghanistan yeah. war. Well, now we get great power competition. You know, we end the Ukraine war. Well, now we get a Taiwan war, you know, so it's, you know, but at some point <laughs> yeah. they got to run out of war. So if we just keep chipping it away, you know, I think we're getting down to the final wars. And so we're either going to win and we're going to have global some kind of peace or obviously we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go up in the, you guys are in DC, right? Or, you know, I'm in DC, so you know, that'll be the end, but, but I think we're going to win. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, so, but, but I think the spending is just, I mean, you know, it's just amazing to think how these people are, are making off with all this money, all this crazy missile systems. It's like, you know, all this incredible technology. It's like, dude, you know, you could just talk it out. You could just like find a, a mutually agreeable kind of way of getting along in the world. And, you know, but that's just so far beyond yeah. what they what they think is possible. Everyone else is evil. one. You know, we have the best intentions. You know, everyone else is evil, you know, and, and it's like, well, it's just amazing that they can really believe that, you know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, that kind of attitude about talking it out. That's not good for the Raytheon uh, shareholders, though. So going to be a no unfortunately yeah who really like please center the most marginalized group in america eric when you talk about this kind of stuff we really need to keep them front and center yeah their dividends yeah Yeah. well you know they are doing pretty well you know they have there are a lot of you know good people working as lobbyists here in dc you know a lot of them have you know really they they really are some lobbyists that that brought themselves up by their picked themselves up by their bootstraps became great lobbyists um, you know, and but unfortunately, yeah, what they're what they're representing is is basically evil. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's whatever. <laughs> uh, well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people uh, follow you and f- learn more about just foreign policy? Yeah, I think probably best way would be our, our Twitter at uh, just fp uh, handle it at just fp, and, and my my personal uh, Twitter is Eric Sperling. Um, on Twitter as well. And, uh, and also just foreign policy.org. Um, but yeah, we'd love to, you know, join our list and, uh, you know, and, and if you're in the DC area or if you're really anywhere, you know, we can, uh, we'd love to have you kind of connect and help get involved with our, our efforts to, yeah, essentially just try to fight this horrible war machine and all of its varying parts. I mean, all the progressive war machine aspect. I mean, it's, you wouldn't believe how many people are, you know, progressive in DC, but then are actually serving those same interests. So we need everyone we can get. And so hit me up, um, you know, uh, through, through Twitter, if that's something of interest to you. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thank you, guys. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>